Welcome to Naturistic, a podcast focused on ecology, evolution, plants and animals. I'm Nash Turley, a biologist, and each episode I research a specific subject and present what I've learned to my co-host Hamilton Boyce. This episode we talk about California's grasslands. Hey there, Nash Turley. How's it going? Oh, pretty good. It's good to be back here on the internet. On live on the internet, but not live. <laughs> yeah. I got a question for you. I've got an answer for you. Let's hope so. Do you know the difference between non-native slash introduced versus invasive? Ooh, I think... When I, it comes to species, uh, so like a, a non-native species versus an invasive species. Yeah. I think I have a... I might have a, an answer, a good a good guess at least. Um, my understanding is that non-native is something that, <laughs> this is going to sound redundant, but not originally native, uh, you know, historically not found in a certain location, like didn't evolve there, uh, not right. in the fossil record, whatever, probably presumably bought, brought somewhere by humans um, mm-hmm. in, the, in the recent whatever, I don't know, 100,000 whatever years. And then I believe that invasive species are ones that are not only introduced slash non-native, but also have a tendency to rampantly take over ecosystems and outnumber and outcompete uh, native native uh, individuals or native uh, species. Yeah, totally. That's it. So there's, ding, ding, ding. There's <laughs> you win our prize. There are lots of species that are not native. So especially in cities, lots of plants and gardens and things all over. But they kind of just stay where people put them and they're not particularly problematic. Yeah. Um, versus invasive species are ones that get out on their own, start spreading, start causing problems. And then, yeah, then all that's compared to native species, which are ones that, as far as we know, live there before humans messed it up. Totally. I think that's something with gardening too. Like, People are okay planting non-native species, obviously. Probably mm-hmm. the majority of gardening is probably non-native, but I think there's definitely like this level of caution, like you probably shouldn't plant this because it can be an invasive species and you don't want it to like take over the surrounding areas. Yeah, the tricky thing about that is before something becomes invasive, it's often thought that it wouldn't become invasive. So we don't really have any way of knowing if so- when something will jump over and start being invasive. Uh, and most species that have become invasive sort of linger around as not being problematic for quite a while. Um, so there's uh, this known lag period where they'll be around for even decades and then all uh, of a sudden start becoming problematic. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. The reason for that's not really well known. It's thought that maybe they evolve. Some sort of evolution happens where they change to become invasive or it just takes time for their numbers to build up before sort of the exponential growth kind of takes off and we start noticing them. Yeah. Yeah. Some combination of microevolution and just general population growth. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's new species, like the rate of species introductions is not really declining. (laughs) And that's one of the big problems. It's like, well, most of them probably won't be problematic, but if we keep bringing in these species, we know that, you know, one out of a hundred is going to become invasive. Yeah. When you think of invasive species, do you have any experiences with them or what comes to mind? Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, growing up in the Pacific Northwest, 
uh, Himalayan blackberry, mm-hmm. which featured on a naturistic video. Yeah. The first one, which we learned in the making of that does not come from the Himalayas. Yes. Armenia or something. Yeah. And some other nearby area. Yeah. The Himalayan blackberry was always one that was just everywhere. Um, ivy, uh, what English ivy is that? One, yeah. one of those ivies is just all over the place or maybe multiple different species of ivy. Probably the, the main one, at least by common name was English ivy. Yeah. There's a pretty wild story about English ivy where, uh, you know, there's Ivy league schools and that's referenced to like the ivy growing on the buildings. Okay. And so a lot of the Ivy league schools used to encourage their graduates to take Ivy with them and plant it. So as to bring a piece of the school with them huh. and in the process of purposely moving invasive species around. Uh, what a bunch of collegiate assholes. <laughs> exactly. Classic um, privileged eco-terrorism. I don't know. <laughs> That's not the right use of that term, is it? Uh, no, not quite. <laughs> okay. You know, a lot of invasive species have been moved around on purpose. So like one good example is uh, one of the uh, most common invasive birds in North America are European starlings. Right. And they were brought to North America as there's like a a group in New York that was all about like recreating everything that was in all the Shakespeare books in Central Park. Right. And they just brought, because there's apparently starlings were mentioned in Shakespeare plays. So they brought them purposely introduced them and it didn't work the first time but then they brought a bunch more and then now now they're everywhere any other uh invasive species that get stuck in your craw <laughs> yeah <that> means. <laughs> well i f- i feel like that um that shakespeare anecdote i feel like that brought a bunch of other species too to north america if i'm not mistaken like isn't that how like gray squirrels showed up and like uh i don't know house sparrows aka european sparrows and i think that's true of house sparrows gray squirrels are native to north america but they're only native to eastern north america okay so Uh, but they were introduced to the west coast yeah not by shakespeare fans i don't know maybe well they weren't from europe so they would be really off the mark if they were doing that (laughs) (laughs) they're like i don't even know how shakespeare knew about these things (laughs) (laughs) But we're going to bring him to the West Coast for some reason. <laughs> no, but it was that they were introduced into Central Park, right? In New York City. Oh, the squirrels? No, no, the, the Shakespeare oh, the, Yeah, yeah, the, definitely the, the house sparrow and the starling is the ones I've heard of. Maybe, maybe other things too. Yeah, I feel like there was a whole collection of species that are like all now invasive and widespread across mm. the entire continent, basically. Damn you, Shakespeare! <laughs> You thought you were a poet, but really you were an eco-terrorist. <laughs> There's got to be, okay, what is the actual word for that, though? Well, an eco-terrorist is normally a term used for militant environmentalist. Right, which is definitely not the right situation. Yeah, so you're like someone that purposely or um, ignorantly, accidentally causes some sort of environmental disaster. Yeah. I don't know if they're... There is a word for that. They're, they're not people that get prosecuted normally, so maybe they never came up with a word for it. They're just regular old people. <laughs> just another Joe. Yeah. There seems to be more incentive to uh, prosecute environmentalists that step out of line than there are people that, uh, through negligence, cause giant oil spills or whatever. Totally. It's like just the classic case of 
good PR for the bad guys and bad PR for the good guys. I mean, not to say that eco-terrorists are good guys. Anyway. <laughs> it's on record. Hamilton Boyce supports terrorism. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, that's one way to look at it. Yeah, what about you? What's your favorite invasive species? Well, the, the one thing that came to mind was uh, traveling and then seeing species that are native to North America that are then invasive in other places. Ah. One was being in London and seeing a bunch of Canada geese which Whoa. are apparently a pretty, pretty problematic bird there. Huh. And then another one in Europe is, uh, and I saw them in Japan, is um, evening primrose, which is kind of a weedy native plant in eastern North America. And they're super um, invasive in disturbed areas all across Europe. Mm. To be like going on a train and seeing these big rows full of uh, goldenrod and evening primrose, which are like the same in, same old field plants that you see in eastern North America. Right. Sounds like a beautiful invasion. <laughs> they are very pretty. They're both quite nice. Yeah. So there's definitely, you know, invasive species that are more problematic than others. I guess another project I work on, which was one of the most dramatic examples of invasive species was the brown tree snake. So I worked on a project in Guam, you know, an island out in the Pacific where this snake got introduced and there's no snakes there before. And this is a tree snake that eats birds. And the birds there evolved on those islands and never had experienced a snake before. So they had no defenses against the snake. And basically, these snakes got so abundant, maybe some of the most abundant snake populations in the world, and killed all the birds. Mm -hmm. So it's a tropical island with no birds. That is sad. Yeah. So that's one of the more dramatic cases. You know, I was there for about eight months and I never saw one until the day before I <laughs> got on the plane to leave. The snakes? Yeah. They're oh, very wow. hard to see. They're huh. nocturnal and up in the trees. So we yeah. had to go out at night and like someone that really knew what they were doing, how to even spot one. They're like, you cannot leave until you see one of these SOBs. <laughs> we are cancel canceling your flight if you don't see one tonight. <laughs> I made a rhyme on accident. <laughs> I also made a rhyme on accident uh, right before that. Um, can, is it possible to sneak in uh, murder hornets at all in this? <laughs> yeah. They're um, from Japan, I believe. Um, and they're a large vespid wasp that feeds on honeybee-like things. And they've been introduced just southern BC and Washington. And there's a few around. Yeah. So they don't murder humans? Uh, well, some people do die from being stung by them. But lots of people die from being stung by honeybees as well. Mm. They do have a pretty powerful sting, but they don't, you know, they don't hunt humans and they're not particularly dangerous yeah. as far as animals go. Right. As far as animals with murder in their name go. <laughs> yeah. They are a bit concerning for the honeybee industry because they can go in and uh, the thing they are really good at murdering is honeybees. Mm. So I think people that keep hives of honeybees are concerned. Yeah. Well, watch out honeybees for them murder hornets. Um, do you want one invasive species eating another? Right. Do you want to, uh, get into our first topic here? Yeah. Our first official topic. I wanted to talk a bit about invasive species just to get that terminology of non-native versus invasive versus native down. So just, we know we talk about invasive, that's like ones that are particularly problematic and, uh, invasive species are a big problem in the system we're going to talk about, which are the grasslands of California. Woo. I probably asked this last week on our last week's episode about grasslands. Were you familiar or heard of grasslands of California? I, I mean, I would say that I am not familiar. Right. 
like as far as me knowing that they exist, I could probably give myself a pass on that. But um, <laughs> beyond that, uh, yeah, no real knowledge of California grasslands. So they're also called valley grassland, just as a, as a name. And that's because they primarily occur in the Central Valley, which is this huge valley that sort of cuts down the middle of California. It's about 500 miles long, 450 miles long. And is like north of north of LA all the way up to like I think Sacramento or so is sort of on the north end of that. Mm-hmm, and okay. then there's sort of mountains on both sides of it. Yeah, maybe like um Bakersfield or Fresno or some of those places. Yeah, I believe those are in the southern end okay. of um the Central Valley. So if you've driven up over the grapevine, I think that's what it's called. Uh yes. That's entering into the southern end of the Central Valley. If you're going north, you're once you pass once you hit that pass, yeah. Okay. So basically yeah. like once you cross the mountains out of LA, you yeah. are then officially in the valley. Central yep. Valley. Yeah. Word. And then just cruise down the highway for four hundred and fifty miles and then you're done. <laughs> <laughs> Breezy. Yeah. And so that whole valley used to be a giant lake about six hundred thousand years ago. Well. Um, or even further before that, for quite a long time, it was this huge lake. And then about 600,000 years ago, there was a, a catastrophic event, probably an earthquake, that caused it to drain out in a new place, which is through the big valley that goes into San Francisco Bay. So ah. the catastrophic draining of that lake is partially what carved out San Francisco Bay. That's wild. I would not want, want to be a a Bay Area resident during that time period. <laughs> no. Yeah, I guess humans weren't around then in North America, so there were no humans to observe that. All good. Does not affect the rent prices. Right. It, it, it could only make them go down, I think. <laughs> a ca- another catastrophic event in the Bay Area. <laughs> uh, so being the, the bed of a giant lake, this resulted in creating some very good farmland. And so this whole valley is now one of the most productive agricultural areas in the world and provides about half of the fruits and vegetables and nuts grown in the United States. Wow, half. That is a solid Wikipedia fact right there. (laughs) (laughs) That is a solid, I'm going to even maybe try to remember that one. (laughs) It's like, it's like a kind of thing that you can say that people will think you are well-educated yeah, and full of interesting knowledge. Flying over the Central Valleys is really wild. It's one of the most heavily engineered landscapes. When you fly over it, it's been like laser leveled flat and perfectly cut into squares of all the agricultural plots. It's Mm. really intense. Yeah. The grassland of California filled up the whole Central Valley, but also some other areas, um, which include some coastal regions a bit north of the valley and also coastal regions south encompassing the whole area that was LA and San Diego. So along the coast there, basically Mm -hmm. along the southern coast was all California grasslands as well of a similar type. Okay. So we got Central Valley and these coastal regions and together those make up an ecosystem that was about 9 million hectares or about 35,000 square miles. Sounds large. Yeah, that's about the size of the state of Maine or in case you don't relate to that, Indiana. Or Portugal. Ooh, now we're talking. (laughs) So, yeah, very, very sizable. And so this whole region has what's called a Mediterranean climate, um, which means it's very hot and dry summers 
and wet and wet and mild. I almost said wet and wild. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe wild. I'm not sure. Wet and mild winters. A lot of places like here in Florida, it's the opposite uh, because the wet season is also the uh, hot season. So most of the rain comes when it's really hot. But in Mediterranean systems, that's the the thing that makes a uh, system a Mediterranean system is that climactic pattern where the summers are extra harsh because it's also the dry season. So really hot and dry summers, but the winters are not super cold and they're kind of wet. So okay, yeah. more action actually happens in the sort of the, the buffers, the spring and fall and winter. Oh yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, if you've ever, you know, have the depiction of California of having these brown hillsides, that's sort of a product of that. You have stuff growing in the fall and spring, but then in the summer, it gets so hot that sort of everything dries out and dies or goes dormant. Mm-hmm. And the, the rainfall is super variable from year to year. So a lot of what happens, the growth that tends to happen in the spring is really dependent on sort of the variation of rainfall from year to year. So this whole grassland area used to be, they think, composed primarily of perennial bunch grasses. Do you remember what that means? Uh, yeah, sort of. The bunch grasses are like where the kind of the individual is sort of this cluster of of grasses versus um, I forget what the other style was called, but where it's more like individual blades of grass yeah. kind of creating like a big field almost. Yep. And then perennial. Perennial meaning that it's come comes back every year. Yep. Uh, as opposed to annual, which are plants that only live for one year and then die. Right. So it's thought that most of this, um, the most dominant species were perennial bunch grasses, which is typical of lots of grasslands. But there were also lots of annual species mixed in, um, which kind of makes sense given the environment. Like if you only have this tiny little window to grow, putting all that growth into one year in that one little chunk kind of makes sense. Yeah. But the mix of perennial to annual wasn't really isn't really well known because the invasion that happened that we're about to get to. So there's a lot of guesswork of what it was, you know, sort of before uh, European contact. Uh-huh. It was probably grazed a lot by elk and pronghorn antelope. There's lots of small mammals as well, ground squirrels and things like that. You ever seen a pronghorn? That's a good question. Um, Thank you. I'm going to... <laughs> <laughs> I... I really applaud you on that one. <laughs> I'm going to look up a picture of a pronghorn. They're the fastest land animal in North America or in the Americas. And it was thought they used to have a, a relative of the cheetah that would hunt them, but does not exist anymore. So there's really no fast predator that can hunt them anymore. According, according to Google image search, the predator that hunts them is white dudes in camo shirts. <laughs> Presumably right. with the rifles. They could outrun cheetahs, but not bullets. Right. Uh, yeah, they used to migrate sort of across the grasslands of Western North America, and they're super fast and cool. Yeah, they're beautiful. I don't think, I don't think I've seen these. They're uh, quite, quite pretty. Maybe on one of our road trips through like Nevada and stuff, we maybe saw one in the distance. Yeah. Um, but they're not super common anymore. They're sort of struggling with all the lack of habitat these days. Mm -hmm. So in this grassland, there was decent amount of lightning strikes that probably would have started fires. So like, like a lot of the grasslands we talked about last week, um, probably maintained by fire. Yeah. So it's thought that about 200 to 400,000 Native Americans lived in the valley before European contact. 
that also are thought to have burned and started fires quite extensively. Mm-hmm. Intentional burns. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they were they were aware of how to manage landscapes with fire, something that Europeans were not aware of until, I don't know, about the 1940s. They could have just asked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's lots of things they could have asked. Yeah. Or listened. That's probably more the, the more important part. <laughs> right. So uh, that European colonization brought a lot of non-native plants that were from similar ecosystems in other parts of the world. So sort of the Medi- you know, the actual Mediterranean region, um, Australia and South Africa, there's Mediterranean type ecosystems in all those places as well. Yeah. All the best, all the best food as I was opining last episode. Yeah. Have you ever had South African food? Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say no. Yeah, I don't, I've never heard of it either. I don't know. Not, not a lot of uh, specific genres of African food that I see. I've had Ethiopian, which is great. Yeah, Ethiopian is great. Totally. In these grasslands, uh, Spanish and Mexican set up a lot of large ranches or ranchos or rancheros. Actually, I don't know if rancheros is the right word. I think rancheros is like uh, the humans. Right. Like a cowboy. Right. Ranchos con rancheros. Right. See. <laughs> si. The native species of California grasslands were almost completely replaced with annual grass, grasses that were mostly from the Mediterranean. And so this whole region, the size of Portugal, was almost completely replaced by annual grasses from the Mediterranean. Those were crops, presumably? No. They're just randomly, they just were hangers on to uh, European travel and stuff like that? Um, yeah, I, the the mode of introduction doesn't, I didn't see anything that really knew. Some of them were probably brought on purpose because often when they bring cattle, they'll um, bring in grasses that they think are good. So some of these annual grasses could have been brought in on purpose. Okay, so possibly food for crop or for like animals that they're yeah. raising. So yeah, in that early in that early colonization time, there wasn't a lot of crop agriculture. It was mostly grazing. That's why it's thought that heavy grazing and it coincided with a long period of drought. So those two things together are sort of the main narrative of why all the invasive species took over. I see. And today there are about 400 non-native plant species in the Central Valley grasslands. 400 non-native. Yeah. Yeah. How many native species are there? Oh, I don't know. Um, a like lot though, because it's, it's a biodiversity hotspot. Right. Yeah, more than okay. that. Yeah. Um, the southeastern U.S. and the California are sort of the two hotspots for plant diversity. So I know in the southeastern U.S. there's about 900 endemic plant species that only live there. And then, of course, there's way more that live in other places. Yeah, yeah. So cool. I think it's similar because they're always kind of head in head. They're sort of competing for biodiversity supremacy in North America. <laughs> so I would guess it's hundreds and hundreds of endemic species and many more. Yeah. The flora of California is, is really, really large. Word. So, yeah, many places of those grasslands have uh, 70%, even up to 100% of cover of these non-native, mostly annual plants. So it's been very, very thoroughly replaced. Like a lot of the the native species are there, but they're really rare. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mentioned this is thought to be primarily due to uh, drought and grazing, but then eventually a lot of agriculture did come in. So now about half of the Central Valley is converted to um, straight up agriculture or development. And I think, I mean, if it seems like it would be more than that, because lots of ecosystems are a lot more destroyed than that. 
I think the reason it's only half is because a lot of the valley are like the slopes and the hills up on the side and stuff. Okay, which yeah. I assume weren't so great for agriculture. So it's like the the bottom, the lake bed that is the hot, you know, agriculture zone and all the sides and everywhere else were not, you know, were good for grazing, but not much else. So they never got fully developed. Okay, right. I do also feel like the hillsides are good for like grapes and stuff like that. Like I feel like a lot of, or like yeah. olives for, you know, that kind of stuff. Like the, all the stuff that you get in the Mediterranean for like wineries and, and olive oil and stuff like that. I feel like those are kind of like up in, I don't know, maybe, maybe you can do it either way. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, Napa Valley is, let's see, where is Napa Valley? I, I went there. It's like, oh, you don't have to know where something is to go there. Trust me. I, I know from experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I mean, it's, I'm sure, I'm quite sure that Napa Valley, just by the, how it looked and there were some oak savannas and stuff. So I'm sure it's part of this grassland system. And so obviously that's the sort of the prime grape growing zone. But even in that region, it wasn't, it was not as total takeover as in like the Midwest. Like there were still lots of bare hills and stuff in Napa Valley, mm-hmm. sort of mixed in the plantations and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, I guess plantations isn't the right word, the vineyards. So there are a lot of other factors that are thought to contribute these days to the continued, potentially the continued dominance of the invasives. One is nitrogen deposition. Um, so this is caused primarily by burning fossil fuels, which the pollution of fossil fuels goes into the air, uh, gets into clouds, and then in the rain, it deposits nitrogen into the soil. So pretty much everywhere humans are driving cars, there's a bunch of extra nitrogen falling out of the sky, which is really changing plant communities quite dramatically uh. all over the world. And of course, that's you know particularly dramatic in California, yeah. where I, I've heard there are a fair number of automobiles. I have also heard this. <laughs> that that was I had mentioned that on Wikipedia, so that's how I know. Uh, <laughs> they mentioned that there were cars in California on Wikipedia. Okay, good to know. Good to know. Also, I uh, looked at uh, Napa on a map, and it is uh-huh. north of San Francisco, and it is just to the west of Sacramento. So maybe yeah. kind of edge or adjacent or yeah uh for central valley perhaps yeah that's definitely within the the northern because it goes quite a bit further north of san francisco word um so yeah the nitrogen deposition just increased co2 um because plants breathe in co2 and it affects them um quite a lot so even without climate change increasing co2 levels are affecting plants a lot ozone is another uh car pollution thing that affects plants just directly uh, impacts plants and then all the grazing either too much or too little in various places are all these things are thought to inhibit potentially inhibit some of the native species from coming back just got a lot going against it yeah that's a that's a tough one that's a lot to change yeah there are some uh, patches that are still doing pretty well which are called serpentine grasslands i remember these yeah do you want me to tell you about them yes okay they are areas where the soil is more higher level of toxicity, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And that's all I got. <laughs> yeah, they have toxic soils. They normally have some metals in them. The ones in California apparently have really high levels of magnesium just due to natural geology stuff. Mm-hmm. And so there's very specific plant communities that grow there, 
lots of evolution cool studies that have been done there. But for various reasons, the, the annual um, invasive plants didn't, don't really invade those so well. So they're nice. kind of the last little patches that are more dominated by native species. That's cool. Sometimes you just need a little toxic soil in your life, as uh, Britney Spears might know. <laughs> I, I think that's a solid hypothesis that the hit jam Toxic by Britney Spears was about serpentine grasslands. All right, let's go with that. Put it, <laughs> add it to the wiki. Uh, so that, that kind of um, wraps up my general summary. I was mostly working off of this book chapter from the book Terrestrial Vegetation of California. All the details about California grasslands came from that. We're going to move on after a little break uh, to talk about a couple studies about these invasive plants right after this. Welcome back. We got some experiments to talk about. Ooh, experimental. Are you ready? Experimental science. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. So this first study was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, aka PNAS, mm. or occasionally PNAS. <laughs> if you're feeling a little saucy. Yeah. Um, so this is a study that was in uh, a southern, is in the grasslands, is in Southern California. So it was in a place near Santa Barbara. So it wasn't in Central Valley. Very pretty place. And the main goal, the main question of this study was to understand why are all of these species in the California grasslands so invasive? Because you sort of this unprecedented invasion that's so dramatic. So lots of ecologists want to understand why. Totally. Get to the bottom of that. Yeah. Before we get to that, we got to do a little crash course on community ecology. Sweet. So specifically like population biology, how things sort of change over time. Mm -hmm. So for something to invade, so like to come into a place where it wasn't before, it has to be successful at increasing in, in abundance when it's rare, yeah. which kind of seems like an unimportant truism. It's like, well, if you weren't there and then you're going to become common, you have to increase. Yeah. But in community ecology, that's important because a lot of things in biology are what's called density dependent. Mm -hmm. So that means basically the biology changes. If you're really common, stuff is different than when you're really rare. Right. And that could be because you're competing with yourself. It could be because uh, disease is more likely to attack you when you're really common than when you're really rare. Mm -hmm. uh, there's lots of things that can be affected by density, but it's sort of like a central thing in population and community ecology is. Or with reproduction, I would imagine that density is probably a pretty big factor for a lot of species. Yeah. Yeah. So it can be harder to reproduce. That's called an Ali effect mm. when like you just don't have enough individuals to like move your pollen around or find a mate or whatever. Yeah. Uh, that'd be a form of density dependence for sure. And so to be able to increase in rare is a necessary thing to invade a community. Another important part of community ecology is about competition and coexistence. So basically to coexist is just to have multiple species that live together in the same area. Like the bumper sticker says. Yeah, exactly. In the simplest view of the world of biology, things might never coexist because they one would eventually outcompete the other. Sort of classic studies just sort of like, well, why should there be multiple species living in the same place? Because at some point, one would always outcompete the other. Hmm. But there's lots of reasons why that might not be the case in the complicated world. And one of them is that they use different resources. Yeah. 
although plants kind of all use similar resources, they all need sunlight and water and nutrients. They can use them in different places of the soil or be different heights. So there's lots of ways they can separate out the niche, it's called. Mm-hmm. Different wavelengths of light? Um, to some extent, more like different capturing it in different ways or at different heights and stuff. Yeah. Um, most plants have a pretty similar um, spectrum of light that they use. Although the understory plants that are sort of adapted to shady conditions are better at using uh, far red, for example, because that's the light that'll often be more abundant in a shady area. Right. I remember learning about rainforest layers with top layer. Yeah. I should probably know the terms, but whatever, top layer, medium layers, <laughs> bottom layers, where the different leaves are sort of structured differently and different colors because they sort of better yeah. suited to pick up different types of light. Right. That's why um, rainforest, understory rainforest plants make good house plants because mm. they can live in the low light conditions in your house. That is sick. Understory. <laughs> that's also something. That, yeah, that's the one. That's what we need. And so one other thing that is uh, thought to be a common mechanism to promote coexistence is a trade-off between competitive ability and dispersal ability. So sort of break those down. Trade-off, I assume is fairly clear, but it's just like if you're good at one, you're bad at the other, like mm-hmm. a video game when you're choosing your character. <laughs> right. And then um, competitive ability can be defined in lots of ways. But one way of defining competitive ability, especially in plants, is how efficiently you can use a resource and more specifically, how much you can draw down that resource. So if there's a lot of nitrogen in the soil and a really competitive species gets in there, it's going to use up almost all the nitrogen, but still be able to live. So it can use that really efficiently and draw it down more so that other species wouldn't be able to survive on Mm -hmm. that now nutrient poor soil. Okay. Yeah. The milkshake straw drinks your milkshake kind of scenario. (laughs) Right. Some other episode you use that. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. I don't remember what it was then. Man. Well, it's it's highly quotable and it it's applies a good one, yeah. to, you know. Wait, is that from a movie? That's Oh, uh, it's from there it's from w- There Will Be there Blood. There Will Be Blood, yeah. Right. There you go. Also that was in California, wasn't it? Uh yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson uh loves California, loves uh apparently I, I was reading recently that most of his films take place in the in the San Fernando Valley. which I didn't really think about that. But I was like, there will be blood. I wonder, I don't know, but I wonder that could have taken place there. Seems like it. Yeah. Okay, so we got a trade-off between competitive ability and dispersal ability. And dispersal is just like how good you are getting to a new place. And plants vary a lot in that. And lots of plants are surprisingly bad at that. They Mm -hmm. just like their seeds don't move around very well. They're not very good at establishing from seed. Right, you need those trees that walk from... uh, God, is that Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings? Lord of the Rings, yeah. <laughs> Whoops. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Here's the story that comes to mind. I read one of the Lord of the Rings books in a high school class. And it was like a group. A group read the book. And then we had to sort of meet with the teacher to like summarize what we were talking about. Mm-hmm. And this part of the book, the hobbits or whatever, were like trying to convince the trees to come help them. Mm-hmm. And I think in the book somewhere, it used the term aroused. <laughs> so <laughs> we kept like purposely or accidentally like reusing this word aroused with our teacher. Like, oh, they had to arouse the trees. And if they got aroused, they would, after their arousal, they would come join the war. <laughs> no. Just like, uh. I think I was completely accidental. And then I was like really embarrassed or something. But. <laughs> 
Oh man. That's my, that's my memory of <laughs> trees and Lord of the Rings. Yeah. That's a, that's a good, uh, pubescent teenager uh, school <laughs> moment right there. Yeah. Okay. So we got coexistence. It can be because of using different resources or these trade-offs. And then we have exclusion, which is sort of the opposite that one species totally drives out the other one. And, um, one reason for that could be that one of the species can increase when they're rare, but the other one cannot. So if they're just bad at doing that increasing when rare thing, they could be excluded. Mm -hmm. Or you could just have one species that's a total superior competitor for a variety of resources and just uses up the resources and the other species can't survive. Yeah. And those, one of the things about that, when you have these competition that uses up resources, those things can be really dependent upon conditions. So like if humans came and changed the environment or there's a different fire regime or something, that can really change those competitive outcomes. Yeah. And then the last um, primer of community ecology thing is a concept called priority effects. Um, That basically means that you could have all these theories about when someone would win and when they wouldn't win. But there's this alternate theory that basically says whoever gets there first wins. And once you get there and beat out your competitor, then there's not a way for them to invade in mm-hmm. after that because they don't, don't have that. I got their first advantage. Right. And so one of the um, things that can happen with priority effects is it can lead to very, very different outcomes based on those initial conditions. This reminds me of an episode of Explained that we watched earlier today, a yeah. Netflix show about uh, racial wealth inequality. Okay. The rich get richer? Yeah, exactly. It's essential, that's essentially a priority effect. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And they use the analogy, if you start the race 300 years in front of someone else, then the only way, you know, equal conditions will not let the other person catch up. You would need, the other right. person would need, you know, some sort of extraordinarily insane advantage to be able to catch up. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a great parallel. This idea of priority effects has only fairly recently gotten a lot of uh, focus in trying to understand how these, especially plant communities, come out. Mm-hmm. Um, and more recently, especially in the world of uh, invasive species and restoration and things. So these different outcomes that we just talked about have pretty different management impl- implications if you want to try to get rid of the invasive species and help the natives. So if the invasive species is a superior competitor, then that's real tough because, you know, no matter what you do, potentially they're always going to outcompete them. And what you really need is maybe a biocontrol or eradication. So biocontrol would be like a bug that eats the invasive plant. Mm-hmm. Then it might reduce it so it's not a superior competitor anymore. Because mm-hmm. it's dead. Yeah, right. If the difference in competition is really more a fact of the environment changing. The invasives aren't necessarily a superior competitor than, well, if you change the environment back, maybe the natives can come back. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing, if it's a priority effect, then it doesn't mean the invasives are superior competitor necessarily, but you kind of need to like, you need to start over kind of. So you maybe do something to give the native species priority again, kind of start the race again. Yeah. So depending on which of these outcomes are sort of supported by an experiment, they have very different sort of management outcomes. So this study um, was in an area that had a lot of, basically they took a California grassland and kind of started new experimental plots, either that were dominated by invasives or dominated by natives. And it was a very manipulative experiment. So they basically plot, like herbicided and plowed a region 
and then seeded in patches that ended up being dominated by the native plants or the invasive plants. I see. So because they could do those manipulations, that allowed them to do these different um, experiments. So the first question is asking, are the non-native plants uh, or the invasive plants superior competitors? And so to do that, you can grow these plants separately and see which of them draws down important resources to a lower level. So in this case, they measured water and nutrients and light. And so the ones that after they've been growing there for a season, reduce those levels the most would be predicted to be the superior competitors. And what they found pretty clearly is that the the native species are just as competitive as the non-native species. So the amount at which they blocked out the light, the amount at which they used up the nutrients, the water levels were kind of similar between both. Actually, I think the natives were a little bit more competitive by that measure. Okay, interesting. So basically cross that one off of the ideal list. Yeah, and that's good news. I mean, it's easier to potentially do something if the natives can compete. Against the invasive. Yeah. And then the second question is, are the natives superior competitors, but just seed limited? So it's kind of based on the answer to the first one. Yes, they are superior competitors. But if that's the case, why are they not around? Are they seed limited? So are they just not around because there's not seeds? And that's almost like a stupidly dumb experiment. You just add seeds and compare that to areas that you don't add seeds to, but you sort of need to do it to test it. So in invaded, in areas that are dominated by invasive species, you add seeds of native species and see if they show up more. And perhaps not surprisingly, they do. They become way more common when you add all their seeds. So they're seed limited. Yeah. And they can grow when you add the seeds in the presence of lots of invasive plants. Okay. Do they do the reverse where they plant a bunch of invasive seeds, throw a bunch of invasive seeds into some native habitats? Yes. That's the next question. So to test if there are priority effects that, you know, whoever's first wins, they have to do both. They have to have a native plot and add invasive seeds, and they need an invasive plot and add native seeds because sort of you're setting up, you're, you're creating a system where there's uh, one or the other got the head start. Yeah. Following up from the previous answer, we already know that if you add native seeds to the invasive stand, the natives do they can establish and they actually reduce the abundance of the invasives when you add the native species. So they're out competing them. But when you add invasive seeds to a fully native stand, it doesn't really change much. Hmm. So that says there's not strong priority effects. Hmm. Despite the fact that the system is so messed up by invasive species, these experiments are saying it's actually quite encouraging that we could bring back the native species. Just sprinkle some spe- seeds around and problem solved. Potentially, yeah. So it said the main one of the main mechanisms to there being so few native species is because of seed limitation. The native species are very rare, and so they just don't have enough seeds to get around. Mm-hmm. And it suggests that the initial invasion was not because these invasive species are super great competitors. Instead, the alternative is there must have been some big land use change that facilitated the invasion of these non-native species. So this next study picks up where uh, the last one left off and tries to understand if these invasive species are the cause of these um, changes in the environments or that the invasive invasive species are responding to human-caused environmental change, which is kind of what that previous study suggested. So this is by, done by someone that you possibly may have met because Yannicka mm. Hilaris Lambers was a professor at University of Washington when we were both there. Ah. And I worked with her because she was one of the professors that worked on that 
Guam project that I mentioned about tree snakes. Yeah. Um, Lambers? But yeah, Hillaris Lambers. That's one name? That's her last name. Yannicka is her first name. Hillaris Lambers. Hillaris Lambers. Uh, Does not sound familiar to me. Yeah, so Yannicka's still at University of Washington. This paper in 2010 really tried to look at the role of grazing to test the hypothesis if grazing is a potential factor facilitating invasion. Go Huskies, by the way. (laughs) Yes, my favorite dog with blue eyes. (laughs) So these non-native annuals, these invasive annual plants, could have just done a lot better in grazing. They could have better endured grazing, and that could be a reason why they took over from the native Mm -hmm. species. One of the issues that this study points out is that a lot of the studies in California grasslands always compared the invasive annual plants to the native perennial plants. Right. Because that seemed to be the big change. Yeah. And that was a big change, but you're sort of mixing a lot of stuff at one time there. Mm-hmm. And so what this study wanted to do was to kind of compare apples to apples and compare the non-native annuals to the native annuals because there were a lot of native annuals as well. Yeah. So this way we can sort of kind of like compare equal, at least plants with similar life histories um, side by side. Because if it's annual that makes them do better under grazing, well, why didn't the native annuals do better during that time rather than all these invasive annuals? Mm-hmm. Why? 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 <laughs> so much tension. <laughs> This had a similar setup where they had a big area that they plowed and so they could start new experimental plots. So they round up, plowed a whole bunch, and then seeded in these new experimental plots. Except they had some areas with fences that kept out cattle and some where the cattle could graze. And, oh, right, I also forgot to say there was lots of cattle (laughs) at this site. (laughs) Again, like the previous study, are the non-native or the invasive annuals better competitors than the native annuals? And this sort of similar um, thing where they measured the resources and the plots grown in monocultures. And same outcome is that they're about equal. The native and non-native seem to be similar competitors when you measure them in this way. So that's good. They found same result. And then they asked, do the native annuals do better with grazing? Because that would be sort of the hypothesis. Right. And so what they do is they compare all the native species and the non-native species with and without grazing. So the main thing they found was that grazing reduced the biomass and seed production of the natives a lot more than the non-natives. Phew. Some answers, finally. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So one of the plots they had, they grew all these plants in mixture where like all of the native and non-native species, they seeded them in all together. Uh And without grazing, they were about equal sort of abundances. Uh, the natives went from having about half of about 55% of the seed production in the plot without grazing, but with grazing, it went down to about 10%. Okay. So basically... They're taking a hit. When when there's cattle, the natives and non-natives seem to be doing about the same number of seeds. But when there is cattle grazing, they're way lower, down to 10%. Yeah. One of the tricky things is it's not clear if this is because the cattle are preferring to eat the natives. Uh, it's because they're tastier or because the natives are less resistant. They don't recover as well from grazing. It could be either of those. Then they didn't do the follow-up where they had separate plots. Yeah, you'd have to, I guess you'd have to look at the uh, how much they're eaten. They do that with some animals, but yeah, they didn't do that. So there's some poor undergraduate field workers somewhere that are 
going into this plot and measuring every single plant? Yeah, the way they did it is they had they're relatively small plots. Okay, and then word. within the plot, they within a small subset of the plot, you clip all the vegetation at ground level, and then you have to sort out every leaf to its respective species yeah. and then weigh them all. <laughs> Sounds like a fun one. Yeah. Uh, so that's to get biomass and then to, to measure seeds. Basically, it's counting or weighing the seeds. There's some other shortcuts to that where you like weigh some of them and then count the rest of them and something like that. But basically counting the seeds. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of manual labor. Yeah. It's one of those studies that like when you sort of think of it, like you just sort of read what they do. It's like, yeah, no big deal. But then <laughs> just the sampling alone is like, you know, there's hundreds of plots and every one you have to clip all the vegetation and sort everyone out and draw hundreds them all and of weigh plots. them out. Yeah. I think there's 126 plots oh, or something. Good God. How many <laughs> props to... Props to the the surveyors on this study. Yeah. I hope they got a piece of cheese at the end of that maze. Yeah. They won the great honor of being published in the Journal of Ecology. Nice. So a long way around of going through the details of that study to get a pretty simple answer, which is that it supports the idea that all these non-native annual plants were uh, the passengers of human change, not the drivers of the change. So that humans caused a bunch of disruption in the landscape, and then all these non-native plants took advantage of that big disruption. Yeah. It suggests that if the changes in landscape and the grazing didn't happen, maybe this big invasion event also maybe wouldn't have happened. Right. That it, it suggests that, you know, it can't go back in time and no, of course, but. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is it says that the non-native grasses are uh, favored by intense grazing. And one reason for that could be that all of these European species are better adapted to grazing because they'd actually been around cattle for maybe up to about 6,000 years ah. and had time to adapt to cattle and this heavy grazing because humans were raising cattle there for a long time. That's a fun uh, little twist to it there. Yeah, it's it's speculation, but it's, it's possible. Well, I don't care how much of speculation it is. I am convinced. <laughs> <laughs> there were grazing animals in California. Mm -hmm. You know, we mentioned the pronghorn and other stuff. So it's not like there wasn't, but maybe it's possible they just moved around more or just was never as intense as cattle. Yeah. I mean, I assume that there's more of them now. Otherwise, what's the difference if there was already grazing? Right. Yeah. And then, so in terms of a management suggestion, this study is also pretty straightforward. It says, well, we need to add seeds like the previous study suggested mm -hmm. and also reducing the amount of grazing by cattle could also help a lot right. so basically add seeds get rid of cows yeah a, pl a plant-based <laughs> solution <laughs> yeah it's very vegan friendly <laughs> restoration has anyone tried making these updates these changes or is it is it very like theoretical at the at this point i don't really know i would hope there's been some areas where they've put in the effort to do some <laughs> legit <laughs> restoration. And yeah. it seems like there's some pretty clear guidelines of what would be effective. Mm -hmm. There's two reasons why that may not have been done in a large scale. One is that a lot of plants don't have seeds available just because there's no one growing them. And if they are available, they're quite expensive normally. Mm. So doing it at large scales could just be limited by cost. Yeah. And then of course, growing cattle is a profitable business. So right. how do you reduce it? And Probably a lot of it is private land and stuff. So yeah, yeah, it's it's like lots of things. I feel like the common thread in a lot of conservation and restoration is like you know if we had the incentive to put 
a lot of resources into it, we could do it. But the outcome isn't going to make a lot of money. It's just going to help native biodiversity. Yeah. And it's limiting private capital. Yeah. And people don't want to have the government telling them what they can and can't do. (laughs) Right. All the sort of summary stuff I read about California grasslands never really mentioned much about what scale of restoration is happening now. Yeah. It's just basically like all environmental issues like, okay, we've got the answer. Now we shall do nothing because we can't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That was one thing that kind of, I guess, continues to bum me out about again continuing to do research of that sort. It's like, you know, obviously some of that research is has the potential to be really important. But so many of the issues are like, well, we don't really need more studies to know what to do. (laughs) Like we have a pretty good idea of what would probably work. We just need to do it. (laughs) Right. Need to raise the money or buy the land or whatever. So that reminds me a little bit of uh, this large, like multi-year study that was going on at the UW when I was like working as a a lab assistant and in the mm-hmm. uh, the environmental health uh, department or lab or whatever. And um, they were doing this study that was like looking to see if giving vacuums or something to low-income families would mm-hmm. help reduce. I think like diseases that came from like having dust and and environmental contaminants and stuff like that, like asthma or whatever. So they did this big multi-year study where there was like, you know, all these, there was the control group where they didn't give vacuums to them. And there was the Mm -hmm. actual group where they gave vacuums to them and they would come and like measure the dust in corners of their homes or whatever. And they did this over like so many years and there's so many people involved in the study and it's like i mean i don't know how many millions of dollars they spend and it's like man just just give them the vacuums you know like (laughs) what's the worst that could happen yeah i get it though i mean i get that it's it's helpful for especially for like political purposes to be able to say like here are the facts here's the science this is why we need to do this but it can be frustrating on like a surface level especially i don't know i didn't follow up on that like if the results come back, like, yes, it is helpful. Like I'm going to go ahead and get and say, probably helpful. If I had to bet on it, you know, did they then do that? Did they then give those people vacuums or did it, was it just theoretical? I don't know. Yeah. I think those types of studies seem to be most useful when there's a desire in the resources to do something, but there then needs to be hard decisions of like how to best spend that money. Totally. So that that makes sense. It, probably the more likely outcome I would guess would be there wasn't really resources ever to buy lots of people vacuums anyways. So, <laughs> but I don't know, maybe, maybe yeah. there was, maybe that could have resulted in that being a program, but. Yeah, no, it may have uh, been that. It may have been like, here's the budget that we have and how do we best use it. But it's just funny when you then spend like so much on figuring out what to do when it's like, you know, I guess if it's if it's a large enough scale and if it's a long enough term, then it makes sense to like figure out the right use of it. But there is there is a role that a problematic role that research could play at times where government institutions are more comfortable funding the study of what to do about it than they are actually doing something about it. Totally. So it's like, well, we have $10 million. We could spend $8 million on environmental impact statement on if this will be problematic or not. And if the cows do this and if that does that, because like that doesn't 
necessarily result in anything. It could help. Yeah. But it's like, oh, well, we spent all our money on the study, so we don't have no money to protect the land anymore. <laughs> Oops. Or, right. I'm not as deep in the sort of environmental policy world, but yeah, that seems to be the trend with a lot of climate change stuff. It's like, oh, well, fun to study, to study, model this and model that. And there's never really any intention on like cutting carbon, but they can pretend that they did something because they funded all these studies. Yeah, totally. Or even just the simple fact of like, okay, well, it's easy for us to throw $10 million at a study because we don't have yeah. to change anything. We don't have to right. create any laws. We don't have to limit any capitalism. Um, right. But if you want to actually like change what people are allowed to do, change what corporations are allowed to you know, take advantage of and stuff like that, then suddenly it's like, eh, can we just go back to like throwing lump sums of money into some labs and saying that we're working on some stuff. Yeah, it puts all the scientists in a weird place because it's like, well, if the if there was genuine desire to do something about it, you would want these studies. Totally. But if there's not actual genuine desire, then you're sort of kind of playing into their propaganda because you're like, well, we did something. We paid all these scientists to do all this work. So reelect us or whatever. Yeah. But there was really no intention of doing anything about it. Yeah. So it's just kind of like a piece, your scientists become a rhetorical tool yeah. or a propaganda tool in ways. Right. I guess maybe the the upside of that would be, you know, it's possible that even if the intention is to just kind of like make it seem like they're doing something, you know, maybe after enough time and after enough studies when it yeah. just becomes like increasingly hard to deny the science where there's just like so much science that just all points in the same direction like even if you know politicians or whoever are just really trying lobbyists and stuff are just trying to like put it off like it might end up i mean it's it's classic i just love railing on capitalism in this podcast for some reason but um it's classic capitalism where it's like very very much like a short-term solution and uh you know, maybe the long-term result is that like eventually people are like, well, all these studies that you've funded show very clearly that we need to do something different here. It might just take longer than it should. Yeah. Well, it's like how Exxon was shown to have done a bunch of studies on climate change, like in the eighties. Yeah. And then just suppressed it because they realized it totally undercut their business model. (laughs) Oh God. Yeah, I think what we're seeing now is exactly what you're saying, where all that evidence has built up. And now the strategy is to deny science and deny all forms of expertise across the board, because we realize that this evidence is like counter to our worldview and and our agenda. So we just have to create a world where all forms of expertise are to be questioned and untrusted. Totally, man. Yeah, that is definitely the hot take. Yeah. It's like, oh, uh, science? No, no. Actually, just anything any of these people say, you're going to get <laughs> just going to want to go ahead and disregard that. They're they're uh they have some other confusing ulterior motives that we don't have time to get into, but just ignore them. Yeah. It's funny. I j- I just uh, finished this book called The Three Body Problem. It's a Chinese novel, and I'm I Very heard hip. it was popular in China, so I'm actually surprised that it wasn't uh, banned because <laughs> yeah. it's fairly, well, some of it can be interpreted as very critical of the cultural revolution and sort of authoritarian communism and stuff. Yeah. But the broad theme, it's got aliens involved in a bunch of stuff, mm, but there's a part of it w- where um, there's this kind of like global cult that wants to invite these aliens to conquer Earth <laughs> and... <laughs> 
One of the ways they want to facilitate these aliens invading Earth is to undercut scientific institutions so that humans don't become advanced enough scientifically to defend themselves against the alien Whoa. invaders. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty intense, but I, I say all of that is because it shows, it presents the narrative of scientists being really culturally powerful and important. And if you want to prevent things, you need to undercut science or discredit science in various yeah. ways. And it ha there's a moment while reading that where I thought, you know, I've sort of at times been on the fence of whether I want to continue in academia or whatever. But there's a moment there where I'm like, you know, my general trend of being sort of a political dissonant and subversive, sort of merging that with me also being a scientist. Yeah. Like these are actually two sides. These are similar. Like seeing the world through an evidence-based lens makes you a political subversive in the world of capitalism when scientific evidence is broadly rejected. Oh, damn. Snap. That's, there it is. <laughs> I'm going to go get my PhD now. <laughs> With this podcast at one episode at a time, we're working to uh, subvert capitalism and overthrow the bourgeoisie. <laughs> Yeehaw! Yep, <laughs> 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 Sign in next week for the next. <laughs> well, speaking of that, uh, we can wrap it up. Um, cool. What do we got? We got, um, we got a YouTube channel. Check that out. We put out a zombie ant video recently that was pretty sweet yeah very cool it's youtube.com slash naturistic and we have one that's in the a short a shorty that's in the works that i haven't worked on for a couple weeks but um would theoretically be relatively quick to finish yeah and so next week we're planning on doing a podcast in conjunction with that about some weird little bugs called ant lions ant lions uh so that'll be the topic next week if you want to learn more about anything we talked about uh all the papers i researched are linked over at our website naturally.org naturistic we have a post for every episode the links for everything you can send us an email at naturistic series at gmail.com anything else that is all my friends excellent well thanks for joining us and more nature facts next time peace peace